Thank you so much, Pastor Rob. And Arlene and I have um, so enjoyed being here. And we feel like you've really rolled out the red carpet for us in a marvelous way. You know, I, I really think that it was the gift of hospitality, among others, that was tremendously used in the growth of the first century church. And it's possibly an underrated gift in our time. And I just want to thank you for your warm hospitality during this time and pray that you are at least half as blessed as Arlene and I feel like we've been over these last couple of days together as we've lift, lifted our eyes to the bigger picture, uh, getting some altitude and clearing the cataracts from our spiritual eyes. See a little bit more clearly. I also would love to just say a personal word of gratitude because I don't get this opportunity very often for Arlene's Uncle Harry and Aunt Muriel. Uh, I humorously <laughs> think of them as icebergs. What do you think of when you think of an iceberg? The fact that you're only seeing a small portion of it, and so much of it is, in their case, probably only going to be revealed in heaven. The ripple effect of lives well lived. At our church in Orlando, the pastor often talks about big, godly people. And he emphasizes that we need these kinds of people in our lives. And for Arlene and me, and for literally, probably a couple of hundred family members, as Uncle Harry serves as the patriarch of the expanding Fletcher family and all the associated tribes, uh, we feel like we have an anchor, a model, a model in this couple of godliness. And so I know they're a blessing here. I'm confident of that. But uh, there are people all around the world who can trace their spiritual lineage to the faithfulness. And I, I know they wouldn't want me to be saying these things. But it's just an example, an inspiring example to me of the impact of lives aligned with God's word and with his purposes. Well, uh, this morning, you've probably heard of ecclesiology, and you've probably heard of eschatology and a few other ologies. I would like to speak to you about surpriseology. How many of us like surprises? Let's see the hands. Okay, I think it's about, it's about 16 people. <laughs> uh, the rest of you maybe are a shade smarter. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourselves, now wait a minute, Steve. I need to know more before I commit. Because it depends on what kind of surprise you're talking about. Uh, for example, my brother and I had a surprise one night there in the jungle as there was some noise <clears throat> in the toy basket next to us, and lo and behold, we kept calling out to mom, and she'd come and check, didn't see anything, and after three times, like, like Samuel calling out to Eli, finally my mom came in a third time and noticed an eight-foot python <laughs> on the toy basket, and it was preparing two or three of our newborn kittens for a meal. And it's not the kind of surprise you want to wake, to, wake up to, is it? My dad had a... <clears throat> 
a really dull sword that he had picked up in Thailand on our way out there. And it was on the shelf, a decorative item, and he took it out of the sheath and it just bounced off this python. And <clears throat> just, just really interesting. Well, life is full of surprises though, and, and often it's not through the routine, predictable aspects of life that we learn the most about ourselves, is it? Much less about God. But it's through the surprising events that he allows into our lives that our faith is tested. And we realize that there's so much more going on than we, we may have recognized. If you look through the pages of the Bible, the Bible too is full of surprises. The flood was a surprise. Joseph, that shepherd boy thrown into the pit, ends up becoming the prime minister of the Egyptian empire. David, the, the least likely to succeed, becomes the king in Jerusalem. Esther, the peasant girl, becomes the queen of another empire. Everything Jesus said, if you fast forward through the pages of scripture, everything he said and everything he did surprised people. His birth was a surprise. His death was a surprise. The resurrection was a surprise, even to his disciples, though he'd been explaining it to them on multiple occasions. And I have an idea that his second coming is going to be a surprise to a lot of people. That's going to be a glorious day when we hear that trumpet. We learn more about ourselves and about God from these unexpected situations. And I, I've read, I'm not sure how accurate it is, that there are 950 designations, names of God in the scriptures. And I would like to add a 951st, God the surpriser. And I'm learning to pray a prayer that at first uh, was a bit scary to pray. And that is, Lord, please surprise me for your glory. Surprise me with your superior plan. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Lord, please surprise me with your superior plan. So turn with me to the little book of Jonah. Here's another. Yeah, I remember as a kid, you know, at first I would, we, we would always open a Christmas present on Christmas Eve. It was kind of a family tradition. And you had to choose one present to open and Initially, it was like, let's go for the biggest present. And then after a while, I got a little smarter, and I realized, you know, often it was a small present that was especially valuable, a watch or a calculator or whatever it was. And here's a small present, a small package that packs a real spiritual punch in the book of Jonah. In case it helps you, it's between Obadiah and Micah as you're turning, as you're turning your Bible on. Jonah's life was interrupted by a massive surprise, okay? We're just going to touch uh, <clears throat> butterfly-like on three or four of God's surprises for Jonah, and we could probably mention others as well. But the first surprise, let me read here. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. That, that version is a little bit different there. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed the opposite direction for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish. <laughs> again, he mentions it again. To flee from the Lord. Jonah was heading the other direction. 
So this first surprise is that God had a bigger and more radical plan for Jonah than he had for himself. The mission that God had for Jonah was a shocker. Nineveh, the ultimate pagan capital. Uh, if you read in the pages of Genesis, founded by a warrior named Nimrod, or a symbol of rebellion and tyranny, of cruelty, about 500 miles away from where Jonah was, and that might not seem like much to us as we drive our freeways today, but if you're walking 500 miles, you can appreciate that even logistically, Jonah was not excited about this idea. A great city, 600,000 people, far larger than any city that Jonah had ever been exposed to. Some have estimated. A city known for brutality and torture and burning people alive, a massive military. And a few decades later, Jonah probably knew God was going to use Assyria as his instrument to punish and to invade the northern kingdom of Israel. And yet God is calling Jonah to go to them. And I suspect Jonah realized very quickly that why would he be calling me to go to them? It's because he wants to give them another chance. It's because he wants to delay his sword of judgment. And that didn't sound right to Jonah. Now let's not sell Jonah too short. I think there was a lot going on here. And he was grappling with things that you and I may never, deeper than you and I may ever have the opportunity to grapple with. Deeper theological realities and truths given his framework. And yet we see from this that God is in the business of disturbing our equilibrium as his people, as his disciples, and calling us out of our comfort zones, our beautiful Cape Cods, as it were. And I don't mean just out of this community, but I mean sometimes it's out of your home and down the street to a neighbor's home into our less comfortable environments because he has a bigger vision for us than we might have for ourselves. Into a world that is in need of God's love and his mercy. So it was back in 1962 that my parents responded to God's call on their lives. This was my first overseas mission trip. I was six months old and my parents uh, carried me onto a ship in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, called the Oriana. I googled it some time ago and found that it had been decommissioned quite a few years ago, but in its day it was a, a beautiful ship. We sailed via Hawaii and New Zealand and Australia and ended up in the highlands of New Guinea. New Guinea is about 1,500 miles long. It looks like a Tyrannosaurus Rex sunbathing on the equator just north of Australia. And we arrived on the, uh, the rib cage, the, the, the backbone, the highlands, some of these mountains reach up to 16,000 feet on the equator, snow-covered mountains. And got off the airplane there, a few missionaries had preceded us, and they said, Don and Carol, we've just heard about this tribe down in the southern swamps. They live in tree houses, we don't know much about them. It's hot and humid, not nice and cool like it is up here in the highlands. They may be cannibals. Would you be happy to take the gospel to them? <laughs> Mom and dad glanced at each other. I like to think they at least glanced at me momentarily. <laughs> and they responded, yes, we'll take the assignment. That's what God has called us to do. Make a long story short, about two weeks later, 
dad with the help of another missionary who had recently established a gospel beachhead in an enemy tribe of the Sawi people, uh, traveled into the, the Sawi jungle domain, uh, encountered several Sawi men at the junction of two rivers, got their help to build a little house about 20 feet by 20 feet, covered it with thatch and using sign language, uh, tried to communicate to them in about 10 days time, I'm gonna come back with my wife, my little baby, and we want to live here and we want to learn your language and uh, we want to, to give you a message. He wasn't sure if they understood. But sure enough, about 10 days later, we departed Kawem at uh, sunrise, paddled all day long. Several courageous warriors from this other tribe, the Kaigar, took their lives in their own hands to, to paddle us, to escort us into enemy territory, into the Sawi territory. We rounded the last bend as the sun was setting and uh, pulled up in the mud at the feet of a throng of 400 Sawi warriors armed to the teeth. They had understood, <laughs> and they had gathered to welcome these pale, sickly-looking extraterrestrials <laughs> into their domain. And this is the little slide, mildewed from years in the tropics, a picture that my dad snapped from the canoe of some of the spears pointing heavenward as the sun was setting behind them. <clears throat> no women or children to be seen because they were afraid and they were hiding in the jungle walls waiting to see what was gonna happen. Dad put the camera down and reached over and picked me up out of my mother's arms and carried me up, slipping and sliding through the mud. Mom followed, not knowing that in the Sawi culture and in their minds, a man coming from the outside with no weapons in his hands carrying a baby was a sign that he was coming in peace. And the Sawi warriors began to relax and they started exchanging their spears for drums and a signal went out and one of the chiefs said, Asa, and those drums started to pound and beat and they started to dance around us. Imagine uh, this, this Canadian-American couple with their eight-month-old baby, it was, I was eight months old by that time, surrounded by a hurricane of human flesh, just dancing and just amazed that these creatures from another world had arrived. And they escorted us up to the little notched pole that led into the, the house, a thatch box of a house, and that's where I grew up as a kid in that house. And they danced around that house for three days and three nights, almost without stopping. And it was our baptism into the world of the Sawi, into their culture. And it was an amazing world. Mom and dad, as they began to learn their language, realized, well, first of all, let me say that's where I grew up. And in Orlando, I like, like to think we have Disney World and we have Universal Studios and SeaWorld and you've got your beautiful beaches and so forth here. Out there in the jungle, we had the little white baby being bathed. <laughs> I was the Disney World. <laughs> in this picture, I'm the one on the left. <laughs> and if you feel sorry for missionary kids, feel sorry no longer. We had all kinds of good things to eat. Like this is the medium-sized Seiko grub. You know, there's a smaller version and there's a much larger version. The larger ones, yeah, a lot of nutrition, but boy, they're gross. This is actually my mouth. Biting into one of these is a little bit like biting into the Michelin Man. It's kind of a rubbery exterior, but after a while that cholesterol-filled juice just spurts out into your mouth and you think to yourself, wow, do you have any more of these? 
tastes a little bit like chicken. So anyway, I grew up there speaking the Sawi language, and mom and dad uh, started to learn the Sawi language as well. And they realized not only did they live in tree houses, but these, this, these people are both cannibals and headhunters. And I've heard there's actually only a few tribes on the face of the earth that actually practiced both customs. Might practice one or the other or neither, but the Sawi were an exception to the rule. And they fought with each other all the time. Why did they live in tree houses? It's not just because there were fewer mosquitoes at that altitude, 40 or 50 feet off the surface of the swamp. It's not just because they got 240 inches of rain each year. It was because they lived in fear of one another. And it's harder to attack a family if you have to climb a tree house to attack them. And they can shoot at you from above. And if it's during the night, they'll feel the, the tree shaking as you're trying to climb up. So it was a safety precaution to live in the trees. Well, Dad finally learned the language well enough to begin explaining the gospel message. And he told the story of Jesus and his friends, his disciples. And he was in the man house, this, this, this one house in the village that only men were allowed to go into. And that's where they would plan their next hunting trip or their next raiding party. And through the smoke and over the grubs, he was telling the stories. And he came to the part where Jesus was betrayed by a man named Judas. And there was a ripple of laughter. And someone in the back said, hey, tell us more about Judas. And dad said, no, you mean Jesus. And he said, no, Judas, you just said he betrayed his friend to death. I mean, that's what we do. He's like one of us. And dad said, oh, he couldn't believe it. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I just, I just like, he just was shocked. And he went back to my mom, and he explained what happened. They thought Judas was the hero of the story because the Sawi men said, yeah, we love to encounter people that we don't know, be, haven't met before, and we greet them. We don't kill them on the spot. We invite them back to our village. We invite them to dances and celebrations, and over time, they learn to trust us. We ask them to be ambassadors between our villages because we don't want to be fighting anymore. And then when they trust us the most, and they're at one of our feasts, the signal goes around among the men seated around that, that fireplace and eyebrows and this. And one by one, we begin taking the, the spears out from the weapons rack and reaching for a bone dagger under the grass mat and starting fitting a, an arrow to a bow. And then someone cries out, which means in Sawi, we're doing with you as we would do with the pig. We've been fattening you with friendship for an unsuspecting slaughter. Talk about a cross-cultural communication challenge. Well, mom and dad did what the only thing they could do, and that is, once again, just throw themselves on their knees in prayer to God. Lord, you've brought us to this place. We find barriers that are just incomprehensible. In the meantime, battles broke out among the four villages that had moved in around us. They wanted to be close to us. They were fascinated by everything they were seeing. But they didn't want to be close to each other. They had hundreds of years of grudges and animosity among them. 14 major battles fought in our front yard in the first nine weeks. Dad getting used to running out. I remember as a kid seeing him breaking bows and arrows and trying to restore peace among fighting men. One battle, four people died as I watched over the fence. And finally, Dad said to the, the, the leaders of the village of Kamor, he said, he said, you've got to make peace because we came and people are losing their lives. And he wondered to himself, how can a treachery idealizing culture convince their enemies that they're serious about making peace? 
Well, the next morning as he was studying language with his language helper, Adi, and going deeper in preparation for translating the New Testament, Lord willing, in the future, he heard a ter terrible noise and he thought to himself, whoa, another battle, here we go again. But he rushed out in time to see a very different sight. A father, tears streaming down his cheeks, had just grabbed his newborn baby boy from the arms of his wife, the child's mother, and was running over the logs and through the mud from Kamor village, several hundred feet over to Hainam village. The mother had thrown herself in the mud and was saying, we only have one child, let someone else do this. And the father gave his little boy, Biakadon, to the enemy. Dad turned to Adi and said, Adi, what's happening? And Adi said, you've been telling us we have to make peace. I don't know how you do that and where you come from, but we're making peace. We're giving one of our children to the enemy. And Dad said, are they going to hurt that baby boy? And Adi said, no, they're not, because the peace will only last as long as he lives. If he falls out of a treehouse and dies in the thorns below or gets bit by a death adder and dies half an hour later from the poison or falls in the river and gets eaten by a crocodile, then the warfare can resume without notice at any time because the peace hinges on his life. And if you wait long enough, they're making a decision over there in that village because they're deciding which baby boy they're going to give in return to this, this village. And those two boys are going to grow up in those two different villages adopted by their adoptive parents in the new villages. Mom had been watching from the porch of our house and he <coughs> and, and dad went in and said, wow, you wouldn't believe what Ari just told me. They've just exchanged two, two peace boys, two, two tarot teams. And it's the strangest thing I've ever heard. And mom said, strange indeed, but also strangely familiar. Two parties at war, a father wanting so much to establish peace with the enemy village that he's willing to actually make the ultimate sacrifice and to give his own son, his only begotten son, to the enemy. That son being killed, but then rising again to secure eternal peace. Hebrews says he ever lives to make intercession for us, to be our mediator with the Creator. And that salvation is secured once and for all, for all who believe. That's the gospel, the essence of the gospel. Dad said, yes, Carol, you're absolutely right. Took a few more days, learned a little more, little more vocabulary, went back to that same manhouse. And this time when he got to the part about Jesus being betrayed by Judas, uh, he added a detail. He said that Jesus was Mialkodon's Tarov team, our creator's peace child. This time there wasn't laughter and joking and backslapping. This time Mahain said, hey, wait a minute. Why didn't you tell us that the first time? Are you saying Jesus was a peace child? Dad said, yes. I didn't know it was an important detail. <laughs> Mahain said, important, it makes all the difference in the world. And you could just see Judas ratings slipping <laughs> in the minds and the hearts of these seasoned warriors through that smoke and the scales, the spiritual scales falling from their eyes as they realized that the, their creator, Mialkodon, had sent a peace child, and through him they could be reconciled with their creator, and their sins could be forgiven, and their lives could be transformed not only for this life, but for eternity to come. One of the first men to come and respond to that message uh, came to my father, maybe a little bit like Nicodemus came to Jesus, this chief. He only had one good eye. The other eye had literally been penetrated by an arrow in a battle and had rotted out. And he gazed into my father's face through his remaining one good eye and he said, Tuan Dan, that's what they called him, Don. Mr. Don, your words make my liver quiver. <laughs> there they talk about their liver, not their heart. 
Here we talk about our hearts. To them, the liver is more important. And they said, he said, your words make my liver quiver. And my dad said, why, Hato? And he said, because, because my creator has given his peace child. And I want to tell him, we saw we, when we have a peace child ceremony, one by one we lay our hands on that baby, and one by one we acknowledge that baby is the basis for peace between us and the enemy. And uh, could you tell him for me? And my dad said, no, I don't need to tell him. You can speak your own liver in prayer. And you can ask Miaokodon's Paroptim Jesus to become your peace child. Hato said, I want to do that. And my four wives and all of our children do too. <laughs> Dad said, bring your whole family and we'll pray together. And Hato became the vanguard of a growing, amazing movement to salvation in Jesus among the Sawi people. There was a point at which probably 60% of that entire tribe, which was not a large tribe, had uh, expressed their own personal conviction of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I had the privilege of growing up as a young man there, learning the, the truth of Romans 1.16, the power of the gospel to transform lives, and not just the Sawi, but today in places like India, with 2,100 unreached people groups, or Chad, and these, these dots, if you, if you zoom up closer on the Joshua Project website, you see that there are just so many of them. Chad, a country of about 15 million people, with 150 people groups and languages being spoken. And even today, in 2022, 115 of these are unreached, and 65 or so are still virtually unengaged. Some of them are nomadic Arab tribes, and we have teams of people out there traveling with the camels and learning the languages and going from oasis to oasis with these people, just loving them and sharing the good news of the gospel with them. The Caucasus, how much do we know about the Caucasus? We've been hearing a lot about Ukraine, a little bit close to that area, between the Black and Caspian Seas. 50 to 60 really difficult to reach, unreached people groups there. 34 of them are in Dagestan. I have a special burden in my heart for Sumatra. It's the size of California. It has about 50 million people, more people in Sumatra on that island, which is also the, about the size of France. Uh, 50 million people and 49 unreached people groups there. One of them is really special to me because my sister-in-law is from that people group. One of my brothers married an Indonesian woman. She's from the Minangkabau people. They are a matriarchal and matrilineal society and also Muslim, which is probably the only tribe on the face of the earth, maybe one of two or three, that have that combination. And there are eight million people, and at the most there may be, I think, maybe 500 believers among those eight million people. And my sister-in-law, Yessi, and my brother, Shannon, are living there. They have a little farm up in the mountains, and they are being lights for the gospel among this major unreached people group. And so that first surprise is the mission that God calls us to. God has a bigger and more radical plan than Jonah had or that you have. Can you think outside the box? Can you pray the prayer, Lord, surprise me? The second surprise is the messenger. Now, Jonah, <clears throat> Jonah's quite a character, isn't he? I think he was God's unlikely instrument to save an empire. We don't know much about Jonah. He's an obscure kind of person for the most part. He was the son of Amittai. How much do we know about Amittai? Do you know much about Amittai? 
<laughs> and I'm not sure how much that really helps. He was from a town called Gath Heifer, a few miles north of Nazareth. Nazareth. He already had a job, and he had no interest in this particular assignment. Going to Nineveh? I mean, that's not for me. Lord, send my brother. God uses a huge cast of unlikely characters in his divine drama. Peter the betrayer, Thomas the doubter, Saul the persecutor. I mean, it took a long time before the disciples were willing to really believe that Saul was genuine. And I've been to the little house there under the, it's, it's like 15 or 20 feet under the surface in Damascus, that street called Straight, and just pictured Saul being there and the scales falling from his eyes as he was prayed over. And boy, redemptive history was changed because the greatest op opponent to the gospel became the greatest proponent of his savior, Jesus Christ. And we need more throughout the Arab world and throughout the Hindu world and the Buddhist world. We need, pray that God will turn souls, imams and leaders and the priest, priest class of these different societies. I was just meeting with uh, a missionary, a single woman who's been serving for decades now faithfully among Tibetan Buddhists. And she shared that to this day, there's not a successful, established, multiplying church in the Tibetan Buddhist world. And there are various subcategories of the Buddhist world. Pray for the Tibetan Buddhists, for example. I remember as uh, a child, uh, this new missionary arrived on the field, and I think I was about 10 or 12. And I was amazed because she was quite small. She was a single, single lady, and she had braces on both legs to keep her legs straight. And she had, she had these uh, crutches you know, on her arms. And she'd had polio when she was five, and she'd spent time in an iron lung, iron lung and it was just a really serious case. And later I learned her, more of her story that uh, Eleanor Young, when she was small and had already had polio, she was in a church and a Chinese evangelist had come and spoken in their country church near Spokane. And at the end, he gave an invitation and Eleanor Young just felt like God was calling her into missionary service and she got her crutches and she made her way up to the front here. And uh, afterward, she said one of the elders had a brief conversation with the Chinese itinerant evangelist and said, I'm so sorry, the only person who responded was Eleanor and she's not going to be able to go anywhere because of her situation. Well, Eleanor didn't, uh, didn't believe that. And she kept praying and she had a long, difficult journey, but eventually persevered. And guess what? When she got to New Guinea, she got assigned to one of those mountain valleys up at 13, 14,000 feet, working with a tribe of people called the Kimyao. And the interesting thing about the Kimyal was they weren't as big as the other tribes. They tended to be almost pygmy category. And they said, oh, here's a little, here, here's a pale, pale person who's small, like us. And then they looked and they said, look, she has bad legs. And we have some people too with bad legs. And they just started to love her and embrace her. And she learned the language and she lived there among the Kimyal. And then they be, as they came to Christ, the men of these villages would carry her on their shoulders or on rough, roughly hewn poles, a litter, a heavenly, a sanctified litter from, from village to village where she could share the gospel with other villages, Kimyao villages, one of the most moving videos that you might ever watch. If you Google Kimyao, K-I-M-Y-A-L, Bible translation, and you see the reception of the translated word of God Thanks to God's work, 
through Eleanor Young. We've still got a few copies of this book out on the table out there. It's just an amazing story of how God takes unlikely individuals. You think you're not qualified to be involved in this or that, and I'm not trying to predict what capacity God has for you at all. Far be it from me. But if God can use Eleanor Young at 13,000 feet among a tribe of people that had never heard the gospel before, he can use you here and anywhere around the world. Uh, we went to Java a number of years ago, <clears throat> and a team started to grow, and we were reaching an unreached people group of about 30 million. And you could fill a stadium full of the Sundanese people, 30,000, and maybe one or two might know the Lord Jesus in the entire stadium, statistically speaking. Well, as our team grew, uh, a young couple arrived, Bruce and Becky, and uh, they started learning the language. And Becky had uh, thought she had a gift for music, but she, uh, she had tried out for the Wheaton College Choir and hadn't made the cut. And she was so discouraged, she thought to herself, I guess I don't have the gift, and I'm not going to, uh, not going to pursue this anymore. But as she learned Indonesian because she was musical, she was able to make short work of that language, and then she plunged in on the second, much more complex language, the Sundanese language, with all its levels. And uh, she started to learn that, and uh, the neighbor across the street, hey, would you like to learn how to sing in, in Sundanese? And we've never had a foreigner. There's 30 million of us, but no foreigner has ever learned to sing in our language. And she kind of swallowed hard and said, okay, we'll give it a try. And she started to learn a song, and he said, oh, my daughter's getting married soon. Would you be happy to sing at the wedding? So she sang at the wedding. This was a community leader there. Guess who was at the wedding? The mayor of the city of two million people. And he wasn't going to be outdone by this lowly man. He said to Becky, hey, that was amazing. My son's getting married soon. Would you be happy to, <laughs> would you be happy to sit at my, sing at my son's wedding? And Becky swallowed hard again and said, okay. So a few weeks later, she was singing at the mayor's son's wedding. And guess who was there? The governor of this province of 30 million people. And the governor wasn't going to be outdone by the mayor. And he said, Becky, my daughter's getting married in a few weeks. He said, would you be happy to sing at my daughter's wedding? And Becky swallowed hard and said, okay. Guess who was at the governor's daughter's wedding? The national television station. You thought I was going to say the president. The even better, the national television station. And Becky went on national TV, and then she got invited to sing more. And she recorded album after album. And 30 million people got to hear that she had learned their language and had learned to sing in their language because she loved Jesus and Jesus loved them on national television. You could go into the most remote place and people would walk up to you as the first foreigner they would ever have ever seen and they would ask you, do you know Becky Wilson? And I would say, yes, I know Becky Wilson. And her husband, Bruce, got tired of being called Mr. Becky everywhere he went. <laughs> <laughs> and all this was made possible how in a very short period of time, at least pre-evangelistically, -evangel 30 million people knew who Becky Milson was because she sang in their language. She went to Nineveh, and God had prepared the way for them. Just very briefly, the response is so amazing. You notice in the book of Jonah <clears throat> that all these sailors, they ask discerning questions. Who's responsible? What's your occupation, your origin, your ethnic identity, your religion? 
And it was like God had, God had prepared the way. So often we think of people in these other countries as being unresponsive. But actually, statistically, I think in terms of exposures to the gospel, people around the world are probably considerably more responsive to the gospel than people here in your own community. And I've, I've seen some calculations in the past about how many times do people need to be exposed to the gospel before they respond on average. And I think the average Muslim responds faster in some of these other locations, even in the hard mission field that you have here uh, in this area. And God be with you in your Jerusalem and in your Judea and in your Samaria as we also lift our eyes to the uttermost parts. They did their best to spare Jonah's life. They cried out to God. They obeyed. They greatly feared. They made sacrifices and vows. And this is, I think, one of the most amazing statements in the scriptures. And there are many. But this is one of them. The Ninevites believed God. And you know, interestingly, I realized later that uh, one, of the, one of the gods that they worshipped, like the Philistines did, was the god Dagon. The fish god. And it's quite possible that Jonah's experience, even as he was fleeing from God, was sovereignly part of God's design, preparing him and preparing the Ninevites for the arrival of the message of mercy. If you repent, God is loving and he will delay the judgment, the impending judgment. And all through the scriptures, someday I'd love to write on this topic, the relative responsiveness of the pagan, or some similar title. Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord. The centurions and so forth. Uh, just so many places, it was the Gentiles, the nations, those who hadn't already begun to take the gospel for granted, whose hearts were ready and prepared. So a while back, uh, I was walking in a fairly dangerous place in a major city of southern Africa, and we'd been warned about the dangers, and suddenly out of the shadows emerged a, a strong young man, and he was saying something, and I looked down, and he was holding a switchblade at my side. And I realized he was saying, give me your money. <laughs> and I, I'm not sure what came over me. I like to thank the Holy Spirit. But I, I turned to him, and I said, well, I might give you my money, or I might not, but I'd like to get to know you first. <laughs> so he'd surprised me. Now I'd surprised him. And he didn't know what to do with that. And I said, tell me more. What, what's your situation? And he was still holding the knife, but he said, you know, I've just got let out of prison uh, a few days ago, and I'm hungry. I don't know what to do. And I said, have you ever heard of Jesus? He said, yes, my grandmother used to pray for me and make me go to Sunday school. And, uh, but then my life went astray. And I was trying to make out the accent because his, his English was quite different than mine. And as we were walking along in the shadows and it was getting darker and darker and there would be sentries in the doorways of different skyscrapers and they'd be looking like, you two don't look like you go together. <laughs> and do you need help? And I started avoiding eye contact with them because I sensed this was a sacred conversation that was happening. After a while, the, the switchblade kind of disappeared and he lowered his jacket. He'd been hiding the, hiding the knife behind his jacket so that I was the only one who was able to see that he was carrying a knife. And I said, well, I think, I, I, I said, I think, you know, you, you've, you've encountered me because you're hungry and you're wanting help, but God has a bigger plan. He's answering your grandmother's prayers tonight, and he wants to give you a bigger solution. Uh, <coughs> and as we talked, I said, 
I eventually, we, we stopped and we prayed under a street light before I went into my Holiday Inn Express after walking together for about a mile and a half. And I said, you know what? Here's $10, buy yourself some food. It's all the cash I have. But more importantly, find yourself some Christians. Let them speak into your life. Let them tell you more about the message of salvation in Jesus and your life will be transformed. And you'll be able to start fresh. He thanked me, we gave each other a huge hug and I disappeared into my hotel and he disappeared. My Nineveh, the surprising situations that God brings us to. My Cape Town, South Africa experience. Finally, brothers and sisters, uh, and this is a very interesting part for me, um, the fourth surprise was the biggest challenge for God. The bigger hurdle wasn't Nineveh. Isn't this kind of amazing? But it was Jonah's own heart. And you know, maybe the unreached peoples aren't such a big deal in terms of actually seeing them turn. It's, it's, it's the hearts of God's own disciples that need to be, have the cataracts come down because God has deliberately, in some sense, limited himself to the mechanism of his people in sharing the gospel. He said to Abraham 4,000 years ago, through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. Now, obviously, they meant through Jesus, the Messiah, Abraham's seed, but also through us. He's not sending angels. Occasionally, they appear to people, but what they say is, talk to so-and-so, and you will learn the answer to what you're longing for. And so all over the world, people are waiting. People are waiting for emissaries of the gospel to bring that news of salvation. And there's so many places I've heard stories where they say, how long have you known this? And with reticence, the missionary says, well, about 2,000 years. And they say, 2,000 years? My father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather have passed away and nobody's come and told us this. So your life is part of a much bigger picture. And you know, Jonah went down to Joppa fleeing from the will of the Lord. Centuries later, Peter was in Joppa and he was given a call. And a sheet was lowered from heaven with all kinds of uneatable food on it. And this time, Peter didn't go on a ship and go for Tarshish. He got on a donkey or walked up the coast and he went to the centurion. And it was the beginnings of what we call missions today of the Gentile world, people like you and me for the most part, being exposed and being included in the family of God. So are you gonna be a Jonah, the reluctant, <laughs> eventual obedient, or are we gonna be Peter's? And even he even had a lot of learning experiences. None of us, none of us instruments is going to be perfect. For quite a while, I often carry around in my <coughs> in my pocket, uh, this little puzzle piece, and it wears out and I replace it with another one and occasionally I buy a, a puzzle, you know, if I've lost the last one. And it's just a reminder to me, it's a practical expression of a couple of things. One is that it's small. And I'm sure you feel small. I know I feel small all the time. It's also unique, at least theoretically, there's no other piece of the puzzle quite like it. And God has designed you uniquely, and he's designed me uniquely as well. But thirdly, it's absolutely essential. Have you ever gotten to the end of putting together a puzzle and there's one piece missing? And you're looking under the cushions of the couch and looking under the carpet, it's like, where did that piece go? 
and I've remembered that my small, unique part is also important. And I'm here, and Arlene is here today and this weekend to remind you that the God who sent his peace child at ultimate cost has created a very special part and place for you in his family, loved with an everlasting love, and he's given you a mission to be part of what he's doing in this most amazing era of redemptive history. We love you. God bless you.